I'm going to continue reading in John chapter 4 from verse 27 to verse 45, and uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a different approach today to um, just how I usually try to go a little bit through the verses. This is going to be more of a bird's eye view of John 4. So, picking up at verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. <clears throat> well, let us ask God to bless his word read. Our Father, please bless these words, which are very uh, simple in many respects, but so profound. And let our hearts not be callous or dry or dead, but alive and vigorous to spiritual things as we listen now to the goal of eternal life. Amen. I've always loved John chapter 4. It was the first uh, sermon I preached when I began my internship in uh, Iowa many, many years ago. And this is the first sermon text that I preached from. I still remember one of the elders who uh, was with me before I preached the sermon. He says, you know, I hope that you being a soft-spoken, quiet chap will uh, speak up when you get into the pulpit. And uh, I kind of uh, reminisce on those days when I was known as a soft-spoken, quiet chap. Um, I got into the pulpit all right. And did I let them have it? Uh, my goal was to tell them about how Jesus singles out people for specific sins. Uh, and while I don't deny that he did that in this passage, I, 
I think I may have been a little overzealous to correct what I perceive to be some um, shortcomings in popular evangelical preaching of the day. So I focused on sin, and uh, there was a lot more going on in the passage. So um, let's just say I hope you're getting uh, Mark um, 2.0 rather than 1.0 when you hear this text today. Uh, 1.0 is... is Sin, misery, uh, striking hard and quick. Uh, 2.0 is a little more uh, generous with the rest of what the Scriptures teach. So I've set that up. But what is going on here? And why would I ask you to go back and do some homework? Well, you know, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking, you know, these people, Lord, they're so slow to understand at times. Uh, Stiff-necked, some of them. Uh, not always there uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. What can I do to help them? Why should I always do the sermon prep? And now you could say, well, we pay you to do the sermon prep. And that is a very good response. I'll accept that. And I'm not about to pay you to do sermon prep. But I thought, no, these um, fine people need to read and sort of get some context before the context is brought out. So, If you read Genesis chapter 24, kudos to you. If you understand the connections, even more so, that is what I'm attempting to do this morning. But you'll find that uh, if you go back in time, and uh, this is incidentally why I'm not really a fan of New Testaments uh, in isolation, uh, because you really don't know what on earth is going on in the New Testament without the Old. And that's here in John 4. You could say, oh, it's a nice story. That's the problem. It's not a nice story in a sense. It is a highly contextual story that only comes alive when the rest of the Bible is attached to it. This isn't just Jesus randomly meeting someone and and then deciding, well, I might as well tell her the gospel. This is something that really depends upon going back to Genesis and all the way to Revelation to really understand. So, for example, Jacob Uh, steals his brother's birthright. Esau is not happy about it, hates him, wants to kill him. Jacob flees back to his mother's homeland. And where does he stop? He stops at a well. You see in Genesis chapter 28, 29, he stops at a well. And who does he see but a beautiful young lady called Rachel? And he ends up marrying this beautiful young lady, although it takes a little bit longer than he had anticipated under circumstances that I don't think any of us could have envisioned. He nevertheless manages to marry her and gets her sister along with it. But then you see Jacob's mother, uh, Rebecca. She had met Abraham's servant at a well, at a spring. And It had to have been a well because the amount of water the camels would have needed to be able to uh, have their thirst assuaged uh, would have taken many, many hours. So when Jacob finally sees Rebecca, he weeps. And this was after he kissed her. And I assume that this weeping is one of joy and not one of regret. So he's met someone at a well, just like his father Isaac had found a bride through the servant at a well named, or a lady named Rebecca. But there's not just Jacob, there's not just 
Isaac. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 2 flees for his life, just like Jacob had fled for his life, flees for his life from Egypt. And where does he find himself in chapter 2? He finds himself sitting at a well, just as Jesus is sitting at a well, Moses is sitting at a well. And there are seven daughters. These seven daughters of Midian, one of them is Zipporah. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 2, don't need to go there, but just so you know, when Pharaoh heard of it, verse 15, he sought to kill Moses. His life was under threat, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Zipporah comes along and he marries her. Now, there's basically two categories of well meetings in the Old Testament. There's the one where the bridegroom is not present and the focus is on the virtuous bride. So the bridegroom is not present. Isaac was not present. The servant was present on behalf of Isaac according to the command of Abraham, the father. And the focus is upon this glorious, beautiful, godly bride. But then there's the bridegroom being present. And in those instances, you have Jacob and Moses performing heroic, virtuous deeds. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 29, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. He saw a young lady and gained what may have been very supernatural strength to roll this stone away. And he even watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So then he kisses Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. What does Moses do at the well when it comes to Zipporah and the seven young ladies? Well, remember the shepherds were there interfering, and he deals with the shepherds, and then he waters, and then the father has to ask, how did this happen so quickly? Well, Moses had entered the scene and he is invited to eat. So what is the significance so far? You're a single young man sitting here. You're thinking, I would like a wife. Well, to take a very literalistic approach to Scripture, go to a well, do something heroic and make sure there's a woman there. Now, we might say that's not likely to happen in this context, but I think in an analogous way, you'll notice that it does pay to be someone who does something, who shows uh, that you're willing to work. Uh, there's those uh, memes, I think, on uh, Facebook or other social media where the uh, stacking the chairs at church and there's the guy walking with six chairs in each arm. And, you know, guys like that don't stay single for long, I think. Uh, but the point is, you know, don't sit around doing nothing. Some guy wondering why, playing video games all day, he's still single and saying, oh Lord, it's not my time. Go and do something. Show yourself to be someone that would want to be uh, a desirable person. And uh, Moses showed some courage. Jacob showed strength. 
And Rebecca showed that she was a hard-working young lady who happened to be very godly. So the context of the Old Testament is that weddings, basically courtships, happen at wells. And they happen often in terms of servanthood. So then you think about the other marriages in the Old Testament, and you find that, yes, these marriages took place, but sometimes the husband didn't always treat the wife so well. So Adam in the garden doesn't treat his wife so well, A, by allowing the serpent into the garden to speak lies and not protecting his wife, but then also, after they had sinned, he says, Lord, uh, you see that uh, woman you gave to be with me? Yes, she is responsible. Abraham with Sarah, two different occasions, say you are my sister, opens her up to danger and possible defilement, and Isaac does exactly the same thing with Rebekah in Egypt, opening up his wife to danger and possible defilement. So you get to John chapter 4. That's the Old Testament context. That's the only context they had by the time John chapter 4 actually happened. But then you have John chapter 4 written in light of John's gospel. And what happens before that? Well, there's a wedding at Cana. Why does the wedding happen in chapter 2 and not chapter 6? Nobody knows. Nobody cares usually. They just read it. Why does a wedding happen? And why does Jesus step in where the bridegroom is embarrassed and shamed and fulfills the role of a bridegroom in chapter 2? Why, in chapter 3, when John is discoursing about who Jesus is and baptism wars are going on, that John says, I am not the bridegroom, I am the friend of the bridegroom, and speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom. So, you read chapter 2, you read chapter 3, and you start to get this picture that Jesus is the bridegroom. Then you ask yourself, well, if He is the bridegroom, who is the bride? Oh, well, we'll have a nice little story about Jesus meeting a woman at a well and all this in chapter 4. No. God is orchestrating every event in Christ's life, every event in Old Testament history, every event in your life. And so Jesus ends up at a well. It's Jacob's well, and he meets a very interesting woman. Now, you'll see there's some similarities between chapter 24 in Genesis and chapter 4 in John. Abraham is the father and he is seeking a bride for his son. God is the father and he seeks worshipers for his son. But then also, remember, the man begins by asking the girl, the lady, for a drink. So in chapter 24, the servant runs to meet her and says, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Ah, I don't know about you, but I don't think that his thirst and the words that were recorded were an accident because in John chapter 4, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Then the servant learns of Rebecca's character. In chapter 24, from about verse 18 to 24, you see her character is displayed and it's noble, it's righteous, it's good. But there's another servant in John chapter 4 who knows of the woman's character. Come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. 
but you start to learn that all of a sudden the noble character of Rebecca is not like the character of the woman that Jesus knows. But then the woman in each story are speaking of the ways of God in all of this. So in chapter 24, Rebecca, in verse 28, the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. She became a sort of evangelist saying, this is what's happened. Because remember what the servants had said about the God of my master Abraham and all of these things. And she goes and tells her household. But then the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 left the water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? There's also the incident where the servant in chapter 24 refuses to eat. And Jesus, the disciples say, "Have eat something. And what does he say? My meat and drink is to do the will of my Father. But then also finally, the man on a mission at each well, the servant in Jesus Christ, has gifts that are promised to the woman. And so in chapter 24, slowly but surely, more gifts emerge over time. Initially gifts, and then more gifts, and more gifts. But Jesus, at the well, basically tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is you speaks to you, you would have asked Him and He would give you living water, springing up into eternal life. Now the similarities are unmistakable in my mind. But the difference and the major difference is that the women at each well are totally different. And the narrators of each event go to their ways, I think, to highlight the character of each woman. So remember, Rebecca, her character is displayed as a young lady, a virgin. And that Hebrew word Alma can mean a young lady. But make sure that she's not just a young lady. She is a young lady who is an actual virgin because the words are, who had not known any man. She is virtuous. She's hardworking. She is a virgin. She is the ideal bride. And then Jesus comes to John 4 and you see all of these similarities and what would you expect? The ideal bride. But the conversation happens and she says, I have no husband. And she says in the Greek, I have no husband with the words in that order. And Jesus zeroes in on that and he says, you are right when you say husband you do not have. For the man that you are now living with is not your husband. What you have said is true. She has had five husbands. Five husbands. Five. She is a recipe for unmitigated disaster. Unless those five husbands were walking along the road one day and a boulder fell on all of them and it was just bad luck. Is anyone here prepared to say, I think that's what happened? No. She has had five husbands. And she is someone where I think, if you read Revelation chapter 17, the whore of Babylon, there are also some striking parallels between the language that John uses in Revelation chapter 17 and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, here's the point. Jesus 
the one full of grace and truth, the one who is face to face with the Father, the one who is the Lamb of God, the one who is the Word, the one who has become flesh, comes into the world and He is the Bridegroom and He is the perfect Bridegroom, the Holy Bridegroom, the Bridegroom that is of the Father's glory, the radiance of His glory, the one who is chief among 10,000. And He comes to find a bride. And you would expect Him to find a Rebecca, but instead He finds a Samaritan woman. And the disciples are shocked. They marvel at the fact that He's speaking with a woman. But He's not just speaking with a woman, which was very uncommon in that context for rabbis to speak with women. It was uncommon for a Jewish rabbi to speak with a Samaritan woman. And not just a Samaritan woman, but a woman who has had five husbands and is now living in a context of unmitigated adultery. A Samaritan woman who is clearly not a righteous person. And that is the bride that Jesus comes to fetch? So you have to then ask yourself the question, Who has Jesus come to save? Who has Jesus come to bless? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here is one of the most glorious, concrete examples of Jesus coming into the world and gently but firmly dealing with this woman. He does draw out of her repentance. He does convict her of her sin, but He doesn't just leave her in a state of conviction. He leaves her with a state of hope and joy. Notice that even though He speaks to her about her sin, she doesn't go into the village and say, you know, I don't like this reformed approach to evangelism. These Calvinists speaking to me about my sin, convicting me Oh, it's not right. Doesn't he know the troubles I've had in life? Doesn't he know that my parents didn't love me? Doesn't he know that the husbands I married weren't good men and that it's all their fault? Doesn't he know all of these things? But the truth is, he did know all of the things that went on in her life. And he still convicts her that she is not living with a man who is her husband. And somehow, she leaves such an encounter and is happy. Because Christ's ways are always wise, always good. We don't need to help God out by watering down the gospel, by watering down sin. We speak the truth and we let God honor His truth. And He does that precisely in this woman's life who goes and becomes a so-called evangelist to the whole village and says, come and see a man. And do you think the village didn't know when she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did? And she's rejoicing at this. And they must be going, what on earth is going on? She's coming to tell us of this man who knows everything she's ever did and we know her to be a woman who's had five husbands and is now living with someone who's not? So they go and they want to see this man. And clearly, clearly this woman is like so many people in this world today, male or female, who are trying to fill their lives with things. It may be a young lady sexually promiscuous because of whatever reason 
and it is man after man after man. It may be a young man who is addicted to video games or he's addicted to something and he's trying to fill his life and find satisfaction and happiness. It may be a thousand other things where you constantly are trying to fill your life with things, but the more you fill your life with things, the emptier you feel. And that was this woman. And Jesus comes to deal with empty people. To deal with people who've come to the end of themselves and said, what is there in this world? I have had it all and yet I have nothing. And so, He offers her a spring of living water that will truly, truly satisfy her. And it's remarkable. Because Jesus doesn't leave her as He found her. And this is really the whole point of the Bible, is that in Adam all sinned, and in Adam all die, and in Adam we are all wicked, vile, contemptuous, moral perverts who deserve nothing but His judgment and damnation and wrath. And yet Jesus comes into the world and seeks out the undeserving and doesn't leave them as He finds them but instead takes the Samaritan women of this world, takes you and me and the pollution of our hearts in order to make us Rebecca's. Paul will even say to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. I betrothed you to Christ in order to what? Present you, these are Paul's words, as a pure Virgin to Christ. That is what the Gospel does. It doesn't leave you where it finds you. It changes you. It radically alters your life and fills you with the truth, with grace, with hope, with joy, with peace. It gives you streams of living water so that you are satisfied now in Christ. And you are so satisfied because Christ is so satisfied in His work for you and in you, that one day He will present you spotless and blameless without any blemish to the Father. But make no mistake, Christ came for real sinners. Not the righteous sinners. Not the clean, the unclean. Not the ones who have their lives together, but their lives who are a mess. Not the ones who think they have everything. Those who know they have nothing and He gives them everything for eternal life. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Christ who comes to Samaritans, to those who are the outcasts of society and indeed our hearts by nature are filled with so many abominations that we make the Samaritan woman look like a Rebecca. O oh Lord, we pray that You will please bless us as we consider the glories of the Gospel and the glories of being attached to the One who alone is able to save us and bless us and give us true satisfaction in His name forever. Amen. We'll have the offering.